Earlier this year, our producer, Mark Filipino, traveled to Jessup, Iowa, to meet with a farmer we had been trying to get in touch with for months. Mark arrived on a clear, crisp spring afternoon, the kind of weather that Ben Rinchi, the farmer in question, had been waiting for, for a while. I mean, we're a month behind because of excessive rain. I mean, it's kind of dried out, so it's marginally fit to take the tractors back out to the field. And it's supposed to start pouring rain at 4 o'clock tomorrow morning. Which meant that Ben and his crew would be working until 4 o'clock in the morning. They had to take advantage of this rare window of good weather to plant their soybeans and corn. we got to get this crop in the ground because we get one paycheck a year. And I want it to be a good one. And if you plant late, you're going to have a smaller crop. Early planted crops yield the very best. Even with the significant amounts of rain the American Midwest saw this year, there could be a few crops that actually thrive in these harsh conditions. And if there is something out there, Ben, along with scientists at an agricultural technology startup in Boston, want to know about it. What if you could take whatever made that plant successful? And, you know, that was naturally selected over thousands, hundreds, thousands of plant cycles, growth cycles. Something made that plant more successful. And if you could take that and put it in another plant, make it successful, think about that. Think about the power of that, taking something that's totally natural and using it for benefit. This is Behind the Money with the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. On this episode, we're looking at how, in a world of big agricultural conglomerates, a handful of startups are trying to establish themselves as independent businesses, and how one ag tech unicorn is working with farmers to break the traditional model. Ben Rinchi comes from a long line of farmers. His family had been working on fields even before they came to the U.S. Well, 150 years ago, my family was in outside of Hanover, Germany, near the town of Berenbush, and there was a little Lutheran church at Pitson, and that's where all my relatives came from. And uh, they came to America, they went through Ellis Island, they made a stop in Indiana. My tribe of the Rinchi family landed here in northeast Iowa. They built the community of Jubilee, and over the years, the Rinchis continued to build farms, expanding to the next town over, called Jessup. You know, the standing joke is we've been marrying our cousins for hundreds of years. That's why I had to go to the nearby village and marry a Presbyterian girl. But when he was younger, Ben and this Presbyterian girl, Lisa Marie, moved away from the farm. Well, the 80s, there was a farm crisis. We had high debt loads, and we'd had high interest rates, massive inflation and, you know, and a grain embargo and things stacked up against the farmer. And it was just very, very slim times in farming back in the 80s. My dad said, don't come back to the farm, find a job. And he did find a job. Ben figured that working at a bank might be good experience if he were to ever return to farming. And by year three at the bank, you know, I'd earned a promotion. I was getting a nice salary and found it very interesting. And at that time, I had a younger brother who wanted to farm with my dad. So I went off and was a banker. He got an MBA at the University of Chicago and spent about a decade working for UBS. But in the early 90s, his life changed. Uh, Unfortunately, one day uh, I uh, learned that my younger brother was killed in a car accident. I always had farming on the brain. And uh, I just decided in there that I was going to take my pregnant wife and move back to Iowa. But it's like, I'm going to move back to the farm and farm. 
Ben got back to the farm in 1993, and at the time, it was 1,800 acres. Now, he operates around 18,000 acres. So, yeah, Ben knows a thing or two about farming. But in his time as a farmer, it's been hard for Ben to avoid what he calls the big four. Bayer, Corteva, Syngenta, and BASF. Big agricultural groups that he says supply most of his seeds. The ag supply chain has been dominated by big conglomerates. That's Emiko Terrazano, a commodities correspondent for the FT. Both on the input side, things like seed, fertilizer, but also on the trading side, you know, big companies like Cargill, Bungie, and Archer Daniel Midlands, who trade grains and oil seeds. The industry's been full of consolidation for years now. In 2016, Bayer bought U.S. seeds group Monsanto for $63 billion. A year earlier, Dow Chemical and DuPont teamed up for a $130 billion mega merger. And the dominance of a few big companies created a huge imbalance of power between these businesses and farmers. But over the past few years, things have started to change. In a way, agritech started to democratize. And instead of seeing innovation come out of the big ag companies, smaller startups started to grow. You know, the cost of technology, digitization, computer processing, cloud storage, that has all come down. So everything from DNA sequencing to data processing... That's all now accessible to anyone. And a few years ago, some of these smaller groups started to catch the attention of the bigger ones, the much bigger ones. In 2013, before being acquired by Bayer, Monsanto bought Climate Corporation, a data science company that Monsanto expected would help raise crop yields. And they bought it for a billion dollars. Fast forward to 2018, when investors poured a total of $17 billion into agricultural food and technology startups. That's according to a group called AgFunder. That's opened people's eyes to, you know, what kind of value or valuations that these new tech companies could obtain. So what's really excited investors about the agri-tech, agri and food tech in, uh, universe is a lot of the backers um, or entrepreneurs from the Silicon Valley fame, you know, the Jeff Bezos, the SoftBanks, they have now been coming into the space. And what's fueling this is the, I guess, the environmental concerns. We have to feed more people at a time when there's soil degradation, there's climate change. And there's a lot of concern around that. All of these pose huge challenges to our food supply and to the traditional methods of commercial farming. And these existential questions, along with the boost in investment, have spawned a whole host of agri-food and tech startups. Think of Beyond Meat, which IPO'd earlier this year, or the indoor farming group, Aero Farms. There's also the alternative data provider, Farmers Business Network. And another startup based in Boston, Massachusetts, called Indigo Ag. Another producer and I took a trip up to see Indigo's lab and to talk with Chief Innovation Officer Jeffrey Von Maltzon. We took a tour of their pretty neat grow rooms. So we're going to have to have you guys gown up. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I think since you have glasses, you'll be good. 
We'll come back to the grow rooms in a bit, but first, a little bit on Indigo. The company got started back in 2014 and, in its latest fundraising round, brought in $250 million at a valuation of $3.5 billion. And that makes it a unicorn, an ag tech unicorn. And Indigo has grown its business in a few key areas. It's working with farmers to store carbon in soil. It operates a digital marketplace for grains, as well as a grain transport service. But it got started with something that's been getting a lot of attention, something called microbes. First, here's Jeff to clear up some important vocabulary. A microbe is a microscopic organism, typically bacteria or fungi. And a microbiome is a community of such microbes that live in a similar place. And it turns out that microbes are everywhere. So the air that we're breathing right now has a microbiome. The clothes that we're wearing have microbes that live on top of them. And virtually every human surface has a unique, serves as a unique habitat for microbes. These microbes inside us, they play a pretty big role in our survival. In fact, they've gotten a lot of attention recently for the role that they play in human health. The ones that live in our gut in particular, if we pass away, they're in a really tough spot. So most of them can't live in an environment that has oxygen. And so, you know, if we're killed by a samurai, they die too. And so during our life, that leads them to be motivated to broadly protect us from not so much samurai, but things which could cause us harm. Maybe something more simple like a bacterial infection. Infections broadly, they instruct our immune system on a regular basis. They influence our metabolism. Literally anything that might either diminish our fitness, they have an incentive to try to counteract. Additionally, over the past 20 years, it became clear that parents pass microbes onto their kids. And so if you sort of play that out over evolutionary time, for hundreds of millions of years, parents have been passing on microbes to their kids. And throughout that time, microbes have had an incentive to try to improve the health and fitness of of those kids or eventually you and I sitting here. Using that concept, Indigo took it one step further. They thought, what if we could extract microbes from high-performing plants and put them into other plants? Jeff says microbes have the potential to replace an enormous number of the chemicals used in agriculture, or at least dramatically reduce their application rates, which means a more natural, transparent form of farming, a form, he says, consumers want more of. So how does Indigo get these microbes? So we start in farmers' fields or in nature, and what we're looking for are extraordinary examples of plant health or plant survival that aren't easily explainable. So for example, most of our products have come from observing what we think of as survivor plants or lottery-winning plants in farmers' fields, where when you walk the field as a result of some stress, so imagine a severe drought stress in a field, most of the field looks terrible. The plants have succumbed to that stress, but there are a couple of plants that look great. And a farmer would typically, you know, in the worst of these scenarios, not even harvest the field or attend to it afterwards. And yet still, at the end of the season, you've you've got a couple of soy plants or a couple of corn plants that look awesome. And it's not obvious that their genetics were different. It's also not obvious that their environment was different, but they've survived. So we go in and ask, what if the microbiome did that? 
We know that every plant in a field has its own fingerprint of microbes that's unique to them, just like you have a fingerprint of microbes that's unique to me, and, and I do as well. So maybe that fingerprint or the unique microbes to those survivors have allowed them to be resilient to that extraordinary stress. So Indigo takes those microbes they find out in the field, brings them back to the lab, and then applies them to new plants. Our final product is a seed with one or more microbes on the surface of that seed in a very thin film. As far as what meets the eye, it looks the same as a seed that a farmer would normally plant. But these seeds are getting the benefit of this microbial partner from the time of their planting, from the day of their germination, and then in some cases for the life of of that plant. In Indigo's lab, scientists put these seeds through different simulations. One is hot and muggy. Another, still warm, but fairly dry. It's all to see how these microbes might adapt to real-world farming conditions. So these are the indoor grow rooms that I was describing. That's so cool. cool. We We can walk in. Don't gaze too intensely at the, at the lights above. It sort of feels like we just walked into a Texas farm. Now, indigo isn't the first to work microbes into agriculture. So getting the farmers on board, well, that took a little bit of work. They were very intrigued and yet really skeptical about the data we presented to them. And I found myself in a couple situations where I was explaining the, the field trial design and then cut off by a grower who said, it's not that I don't understand field trials. It's that I don't believe your data. I don't believe anybody's data who's trying to sell me something. Indigo provides the seeds for free. Well, for now. And in exchange, farmers allow Indigo access to their data. And data is something that almost everybody in agriculture wants. Here's Emiko again. So one of the things that farmers are really hungry for and I think they feel they've lacked is information on, A, the industry. You know, I think the USDA provides a lot of macro data, but the lack of connectivity, anything that, that they can compare themselves with. Which brings us back to Ben Rinchi in Iowa. Ben is one of a handful of farmers partnering with Indigo. He's testing out their microbe-coated seeds and transmitting the data back to Indigo. There's all kinds of sensors out in that field. We're measuring everything that's going on. And we've got a few. I let them store some of their equipment here. Let's go look at some of their sensor-type equipment. Ben heads towards a large shed just outside of what looks like a regular plot of land. The field is where Indigo's corn and soybeans are planted. You're going to hear our producer, Mark Filipino, asking some questions here. So the magic starts here. See that wire and that dangling cable and that little wand? Uh, Up on the second floor? Yeah, that's all these hundreds of sensors or whatever they've got out in this field measuring nutrient availability, temperature, moisture, crop growth stage, precipitation. All those things are being Bluetoothed back to that little magic wand up there with the dangling thing, which is really a Bluetooth transmitter. This is the second year that Ben's been planting indigo seeds, or sims as they're called. After the first year, he saw varying results. Some had had a marginal increase, some that he said weren't that impressive at all, and some that looked like total home runs. One sim had an increased yield of 11%, which Ben was quite pleased with. Here he is explaining the process of how it works on his end. It's a 100-acre field. 
they put approximately 15 to 20 acres of several different sims or treatments out here. So we'd plant a while, you know, 15, 20 acres with one treatment, then the next treatment that were applied by seed treatments, which is a very uniform, consistent way to get farmers to put their microbial technology out there. But anyway, each sim had a different result. And I got to back this discussion off of just some typical sort of trying to retail a magic potion. I mean, they were doing testing. Not all of them, like, provided a magic yield result. And who knows if they were even gunning for yield. Maybe the one sim that didn't provide a yield result provided some sort of difference in the quality of the grain. Let's just brainstorm, you know, could that grain be more valuable in the renewable biofuels process? Could it provide more ethanol? Could it be more nutritious? I'm not a biochemist. I don't know everything they were gunning for. Was there anything that you weighed, any risk that you were considering when you were first debating whether to to use this? Yeah, huge risk that I might get left behind. You have to stay competitive. I want to be the first with all these technologies to commercially utilize them. I don't want to find out that all my peers around here are doing this and I'm behind the eight ball because I didn't adopt any new technology. new technologies that are disrupting the ag supply chain, they might start to solve some of the threats to our food supply, things like climate change and how to feed a growing population. But remember those big companies we mentioned at the beginning? Well, they also play a big role in how these innovations are going to play out. In fact, a lot of the investors supporting these smaller players, they're looking to the big ag conglomerates as potential final strategic buyers when it's time to cash out on that investment. So, in a sense, the whole ecosystem relies on each other. It's just learning how to include a whole host of new ideas. Emiko's reporting on the startups disrupting big ag. It's all on FT.com. And if you've got any questions about today's episode or about stuff you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please get in touch. You can email us at behindthemoney at FT.com or tweet me at Amy P. Keen. That's A-I-M-E-E-P-K-E-A-N-E. Thanks to Mark Filipino for producing this episode and for reporting it with me. And thanks to Jennifer Siegel, who helped with some of the recording. We'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that... 
Wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Brien, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.